Hi, and welcome to Ear Movies' special holiday season episode. I won't say Christmas season because it doesn't mention Christmas. It's just one of those episodes you release at this time of the year. Um, while it's not festive as such, it does contain a bunch of Easter eggs relating to the rest of season three. It's read by John Waters, and he's pretty great in this episode as a seasoned state coroner. He's appeared for many decades on Australian screens and stages. It was pretty special having him read this episode. I hope you think so as well. All along the watchtower. After a lifelong career as a practising solicitor, and then many years as first the assistant coroner, and then for over two decades as the chief coroner, it's humbling to be recognised here tonight. As I've looked back on the cases I've worked on and the decisions I've had to make, I think of the people I've collaborated with, who sometimes struggled to make sure I had all the relevant facts in front of me. I think of the families we've seen and the grief they felt at the realisation of what happened to their husband, wife, son or daughter. I think of the reporters I've worked with and how sometimes they've intruded. <laughs> I don't mean any of you here tonight, of course. Well, yes, actually I do. I mean, you, Lindsay. <laughs> I'd like now to say that in my recent conversations with the Premier, the new Premier, I've had the opportunity to recommend two other people for commendations as well. I'm talking about Detective Sergeant Reggie Roundtree and Chief Forensic Pathologist Hannah Bingwa. Without them, I'm convinced that the crime I'm about to describe to you would have gone unsolved. A resolution is critical, isn't it? Without it, the long years of diligent, dogged police work Reggie and Hannah performed would have remained silent and unknown, and of course, ultimately pointless. Their case files would have formed no more than a paper trail of futility and grief, as is the truth for so many. And you would never have turned on the news and seen the murderers snarl and attempts to actually bite the arresting officers, nor would you have seen the outrage and shock on the murderer's husband's face. A quick sidebar. As many of you are aware, what I'm about to tell you is taken from a chapter of my forthcoming book on forensic pathology called The Hips Don't Lie. <laughs> and now, I hope you don't mind if I extend occasionally into a little hyperbole as I tell you this story of murder most foul. Our first characters are the boys, Liam and Ahmed, both 11 years old. They were in Matraville on their bikes when they rode past the local fish and chip shop. Unfortunately for them, they were seen by Sam Dawkins. For reasons unknown, Sam had an issue with Liam's brother and decided that beating up Liam would send an appropriate message. Sam jumped on his bike and the chase, as they say, was on. According to Ahmed, the ride was truly epic, bro. They careered down side streets, darted at alarming speeds across intersections, and used local knowledge to find small paths, at one stage BMXing down a flight of stairs. I've no doubt that omitted from all narratives of the event was the fact that several bystanders were nearly knocked over. There was a construction site on the corner of Wilson and Bangara streets. It was a cluster of former Housing Commission residences, two-storey units for the most part. The protective fence had been blown over. 
Liam had lived there once, so they darted inside to hide between the buildings. Ahmed told me they turned a corner and found nothing. All the buildings on that side had been flattened. He dumped his bike, yelled at Ahmed to follow him and headed for a small shed. He kicked down the door and opened a trapdoor. The boys climbed down into a sump, a small reservoir for wastewater. They shut the trapdoor and held onto it tightly. After a little while, they felt someone trying to pull it open. They held fast from the inside. Presumably it was Sam, and presumably he thought it was locked because they didn't feel anything again. Ahmed said he'd felt weird as soon as they'd gone inside. Way spooky, man, were his actual words. Ahmed stayed at the top of the ladder they were on, but Liam took out his phone, turned on the torch, and began to descend. What are you doing? Ahmed asked. Chill, mate. I'm having a look around, Liam replied. After a while, Ahmed also started to climb down. The walls of the sump were featureless. Then Liam screamed. Liam was so frightened, he somehow managed to climb over Ahmed as he headed upwards. But Ahmed was curious. He shone his phone downward, but he managed to drop it. Liam had opened the trapdoor by this time and was already gone. Ahmed could see his phone on the floor below, just a few meters down. He gingerly made his way towards it. He stood on the floor, feeling a slight crunch as his foot hit bottom. He picked up his phone and shone it around. Then, the hairs on the back of his neck stood up. He felt the adrenaline surge. He felt panic and the urge to flee. But he was paralyzed with fear. Bones, mate, he told me. All I could see was bones. Skulls and legs and ribs and things scattered all over. I thought it must have been a cemetery or something. Then out of the corner of his eye, he saw something move. He thinks now it was only a mouse. But that gave him the impetus. He sped up the ladder and out the door in no time. Liam was waiting, as white as a ghost. The tires on their bikes had been slashed, but there was no sign of Sam. They decided to call the police. I realised it, it couldn't have been a cemetery, Ahmed said. Not in a place where people lived on top of them. I reckoned it was a crime scene. And maybe there was a reward. So it wasn't total altruism on Ahmed's part, but at least we got there before the bulldozers rolled over it. If it hadn't been for Ahmed, we might never have found the remains of those five people. Or, if we did, the scene may have been so destroyed, we couldn't have learned anything from it. Because, of course, we did learn a lot from it. And as it happened, there was a reward. Which brings me to the next part of the story. As the city's chief forensic pathologist, Hannah Bingwa was called. As coroner, I was in attendance that morning as well. The officer in charge of the case was Reggie Roundtree. For those of you who don't know Reggie, and I suppose there might be a couple of people in the room here tonight who don't, she's what we call a character. She's impetuous, fiercely intelligent, strongly opinionated, and, it must be said, a woman with a unique dress sense. Hannah made her first descent to the bones. It was decided the ladder the boys had used was too rusty to be safe for an adult, so time had been spent removing the shed and erecting a hoist. Hannah zipped herself into a hazmat suit and was placed into a harness. Then she was lifted above the sump. 
How do you feel? Reggie called out. Like a bloody tea bag, Hannah shouted back. A button was pushed and she began to descend into the darkness. After about five minutes, she radioed to be brought back up. Once on the ground again, she took off her helmet. We're going to be here for days, she said. There were low mumblings of dissent from the construction crew. There's no other option. I saw the remains of at least four people down there. Possibly five, although I only saw four skulls. Bones scattered around. I'd say they'd been dropped down there prior to decomp. They're all reasonably articulated, given the 15-metre fall, some indications of fractures consistent with the drop. One has been partially disturbed, but I'm guessing that was by the boy, Ahmed, when he discovered them. Some evidence of vermin. There's a rat's nest against the wall. Any indication of how long they've been there? I asked. She shook her head. We'll do an analysis in the lab later, of course. And, of course, the bodies may not have all been placed there at the same time. She'd said placed, but we all could picture the scenario in our heads. A killer arriving at night, meters away from people in their homes, watching TV, drinking, arguing, whatever people on the estate used to do back in its heyday. Presumably, the bodies were concealed in a bag or sack or some such. A furtive look around to check that the coast was clear. Then, into the shed and lifting up the manhole. Opening the bag over the sump, the slither of a body exiting, and a soft thud when it landed in the dark below. Then the closing of the door and the killer's disappearance back into whatever world they considered as normal. We were quiet. It's not good to be too quiet in situations like that. I'm going to remove them as individuals where I can, Hannah said. It won't always be possible as there's some intermingling of bones where they've landed on top of each other. But I think I can get within about 90%. Are you okay to do this, Hannah? Reggie asked. I knew they played darts in the local league together and were friends, so it wasn't a totally unexpected question. You know me, Hannah said. Ready for anything, right? And those poor people. They deserve someone caring for them now, after so long down there like that. What about DNA? Reggie asked. Apart from the bones themselves, is there anything down there that might give us some evidence? Hannah thought for a moment. Well, there's the rat's nest, she said. It took over a week to complete the painstaking task of retrieving the bodies bone by bone. Each one was photographed in situ and then placed into a bag. I visited the site halfway through the process and they let me tune into Hannah's radio. She was talking as she worked. There we are. Come on, darling. Ah, oh, this is your C4, isn't it? Mm. Looks in pretty good shape after the fall. I'm gonna pop it into this little baggie here. It'll go back with its friends, back in the lab. Then, singing softly. The C4's connected to the C5. The C5's connected to the C6. Hear the song of the bones. Hear the song of the bones. Then she was quiet for a while. I took off the headphones. I looked at Reggie, who'd also been listening. 
We bring her up every 30 minutes for a compulsory break. She's managing well, I'd say, I said. She looked at me. No one should be asked to do something like this, she said. But if someone has to, I'm glad it's her. I nodded. And that rat's nest, I said. How did she go with that? The rat's nest, Reggie repeated. Well, as it happens, that's been quite interesting. I remember once having drinks with my predecessor, Clive Barton. Anyone here remember Clive? Oh, you do. Trevor, of course you do. Clive had just handed down his findings in the Cottesloe air disaster. I'd assisted on the case and we'd headed for a bar once the reporters had stopped asking questions. He turned to me after we ordered. His hands were actually shaking. People don't understand this job, he said. It's not that we have to put the pieces together to solve the jigsaw, but we have to find the bloody pieces first. and Often they're scattered all over the place. In this case, over several hectares of wheat field. And sometimes it's only one or two pieces that matter, like the sheared control rod that caused the pilot to bank abruptly left into the other plane. We were lucky to locate it, although we should recognise the diligence of those on the ground who managed to retrieve it. But all the diligence in the world doesn't matter sometimes, because sometimes things just aren't found. And sometimes, of course, in cases where the cause is deliberate and not an accident, someone has hidden the pieces. I thought of Clive's words now as I pictured Hannah down in the sump, painstakingly lifting bone after bone. These weren't just artefacts to her. I knew she was seeing them as belonging to once-living individuals. But I knew also she was seeing them as parts of a puzzle she was already dedicated to solving. The resolve on Reggie's face showed the same thing. We needed more people like them, I thought. Good people to counter the evil in the world. In my job, I'd come to recognise that there was a lot of evil out there. But I knew there was a lot of good as well. That afternoon, after collecting was done for the day, I met Hannah and Reggie again at the morgue. They'd already started to reassemble the individuals who were laid out on trays. My God, they were puzzles to be solved, I thought, as I looked at the familiar skeletal patterns. Three complete individuals so far, Hannah said. There's some evidence in terms of stratification as to which was there first. You mean, who landed on top of whom? I asked. She nodded. Pretty gruesome, I imagine, to fall that far and land on top of another body. But I guess they were dead already when it happened. I hope they were dead anyway. There's no signs they weren't, she added. Too much space between words, then. Enough that we could picture what it must have looked like. Um, you said there was something from the rat's nest, I asked eventually. Hannah led me into another room. It was hermetically sealed, and we had to dress in protective clothing and enter via an airlock. Positive pressure, Hannah explained. Air can only flow out, not in. Stops any contamination. Here we are, sir. The three of us, Reggie, Hannah and I, peered down at the remains on the table. Some scraps of cloth and paper and droppings. Not much to go on, Hannah said. We found this, though. 
It was a scrap of newspaper. We think it's the bottom corner of a page. See, there's a number four. So, the fourth page? I asked. Or in the forties, Reggie pointed out. Above the number, three words. Until the time, I read out. It's not much, is it? I asked. It's everything, Hannah said. Don't you see, sir? If we can find the edition this scrap came from, we'll be able to date at least one of the deaths. How on earth are you going to do that? I asked. It would mean going back through every newspaper published in Sydney for two decades, at least, trying to find the right page. The internet's good, I added, but it's not that good. It's a needle in a haystack. Reggie smiled. Leave it with us, sir, she said. It's what we do. And I did leave them then, but Reggie told me later that it was what happened just minutes after I left that led to a major breakthrough in the case. It's worthwhile now to pause a little in the story to tell you a little about them, if you don't already know them. Reggie's diligent, brilliant as hell, and as I mentioned earlier, has one of the most interesting, perhaps one might even say, challenging dress senses I've ever known. When I first met her, she was apparently committed to being single. She surprised me when she became a dog owner. Her succession of police partners slowed when she started working with Michelle Pullen, although she's now left the force to raise her large family, to whom Reggie is a regularly visiting honorary aunt. To those of us who know her, Hannah is in many ways the opposite of Reggie. She's soft where Reggie is hard. She's concerned with detail, while Reggie prefers the big picture. Many of us knew that Hannah had a thing for Reggie. For years, we watched as her advances were spurned, invitations were refused, offers declined. Hannah has another attribute that Reggie doesn't, though, and that's patience. So she waited. This account is partly their love story, in a way. A strange mixture of roses and formaldehyde, of questions and cadavers. I mention this in context for what happened next in the case I'm telling you about. Reggie was in the morgue. She and Hannah were staring at the piles of bones, the remains of the five once-living, breathing, perhaps beautiful people. For those of us in the criminal justice system, like many in the funeral or health areas, we become hardened to tragedy. We don't ignore it, but our sensitivity becomes calloused. It has to, or I doubt we'd survive. Witnessing the loss and pain and sometimes the outright horror that our jobs force on us means we have no choice. We make the odd joke in poor taste. We look at a shallow grave in the bush and focus on finding facts rather than accessing our imaginations. And in some cases, we turn to each other. Hannah and Reggie were, if nothing else then, good friends. So please forgive them if now, at the end of a hard day's exhumation with a mass murderer presumably still on the loose, that they made the choice to find some time for each other. Hannah turned down the light in the morgue. She found a bottle of wine and some dusty glasses. 
To be clear, they were away from the room with the bones in it by this stage. Wine and total callousness are not good bedmates. Hannah said they chatted for a while. After the chaos and extreme emotions of the day, they reveled in the quiet they were now in, the low light, the company of each other. Eventually, their talk slowed and it was time to leave. There was a table light in the bone room that Hannah went to turn off. Reggie was waiting by the door. After a couple of minutes when Hannah hadn't returned, she went back. She found Hannah with a magnifying glass in one hand and a rib in the other. She was totally absorbed in the bone. Han, Reggie asked. Hannah looked up. She smiled. Come and look, she said. Reggie took the magnifying glass. What am I supposed to see? she asked. She looked again at the place Hannah pointed at. Uh, all I see is a little line, she said. Precisely, said Hannah. But I, I don't understand, said Reggie. It's quite amazing, Hannah said. I've been staring at this bone, all of the bones, actually, for hours, and I didn't see this. It was only that I'd turned down the lights and it made a tiny shadow. But what the hell actually is it? Reggie asked. It's a freaking cut mark, doll, Hannah said. It's from a knife running against the bone. It's quite possibly proof that this poor woman was stabbed. You can tell this from one tiny line, Reggie said. No, Hannah said. But I'd say my theory grows a lot stronger if I show you this rib as well. I see here, just like the first, only smaller. They didn't leave then. They're dedicated, you see. They explored all the other ribs and found another cut mark. But they're so small, Reggie said. That's important, Hannah said. It suggests that whomever inflicted these wounds had a very clear idea of what they were doing. Whomever inflicted these injuries knew to aim the knife between the ribs with a blade parallel to them, not at 90 degrees. But why would they do that? Reggie asked. To hide the cause of death, I imagine, Hannah said. Hannah worked hard to finish assembling the skeletons. Although there were obvious links between some of the bones, a radius and ulna lying alongside each other, for example, could naturally be inferred as to have come from the same arm, it wasn't always the case they could all simply be matched to a particular skeleton. Hannah spent hours hunched over a magnifying glass, a micrometer and various reference books. Then, as she opened a Ziploc bag, another of the many she'd collected in the halogen light as she'd stood in the old sump, she saw something. She rang Reggie immediately. Reggie arrived at the morgue about 30 minutes later, and once again, Hannah helped her into a protective suit and led her inside the positive pressure room. I waited because I wanted you to be here for the unveiling, she said. If this is what I think it is, you're going to love me more than you already do. I already love you to the pub and back, Reggie said, smiling. How much more do you want? Hannah led Reggie to a plastic bag sitting alone on a small gauze-covered tray. What's inside it? Reggie asked. Metacarpals, Hannah said. Finger bones. 
Most bones, as you know, are collected individually, but some are obviously joined together, like this hand or part of a hand. There's eight bones in there. Let's take them out and see if I'm right, shall we? Hannah opened the bag. She used some forceps to gingerly extract the bones one at a time. Nothing too riveting here, Reggie said. Shh, Hannah replied. I'm saving the best for last. There were only two bones left. Now let's see if I'm right, Hannah said. She took out both bones at the same time. You can't see it under my mask, but I've got a smile a mile wide. What the hell is it? Reggie asked. Look, Hannah said, turning a small lamp to shine onto the bones and giving Reggie a magnifying glass. Reggie peered at the bones. Oh, Hannah, Reggie said. Oh, Hannah, 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 my dear, you've excelled yourself this time. Tell me what you see, Hannah said. I see a tragedy, Reggie answered. I see a struggle, a realization of impending death, and then, at the last minute, a decision to leave something for the future. It's a frigging evidence trail, Han. That's what it is. That's what I see as well, Hannah answered. The poor person has been taken. I don't know which body this hand is from yet, so I can't tell if it's one with the cut marks or not, but at some point, they've realized there was no escape. They managed to get a single strand of hair, Reggie continued, and they wound it around their fingers. I guess maybe they pressed it against their thumb as they died. And amazingly, during the process of decay, of rats nibbling, of the years passing, that one piece of DNA has remained there. They looked down at the hair. It seemed to shine in the light. Look at it, Reggie said. It's a goddamn beacon. It's going to lead us right down their street, up their front path, and through their front door. All these years later, they'll look up at us and know they've been caught. It's going to be me, Han. I can feel it in my waters and all the dry parts of me as well. <laughs> I'm going to find them, no matter how long it takes. Now we have DNA, it may not take long at all, Hannah said. Reggie shook her head. Maybe, maybe not. They have to be on the database first. They've murdered at least five people. It's very unlikely we haven't seen them somewhere before, Hannah said. My optimistic cherub, Reggie said. Five bodies in a hole, no clothing. They've left us nothing except some tiny marks on a couple of ribs and a shred of paper. They're good, Hannah. They may never have been caught for anything before. She let the words hang there for a minute, and then smiled and said, Yet. And when we do find them, based on the evidence we have, this hair will crucify them. One hundred percent. Reggie spoke with anger. The only piece of tangible evidence, apart from the strand of hair and the cut marks, was the newspaper clipping. And Reggie now began regular visits to the library, even restricting herself to newspapers from Sydney left her thousands of pages to trawl through. She couldn't commit all her work hours to it, of course. She had other cases to work on. Back in the morgue, Hannah finished assembling the skeletons. She was reasonably confident she'd matched them correctly. 
All appeared to be women. She'd named them Bernice, Adele, Candy, Ethel, and Francis. I couldn't just let them lie there anonymously, she said. Only Francis wasn't fully articulated. Her fingers, the two that had the hair wrapped around them, remained in a bag by themselves. The hair was long gone for analysis, but Hannah wanted to keep the bones discreet, just in case she'd made a mistake about which body they'd belonged to. I'm 99% certain they're from Francis, she said to Reggie. But I'd hate to be wrong. The person who took that hair is a hero in my opinion. Can you imagine what state they were in? But they managed to keep their mind clear enough to retain this one tiny, tiny fragment of evidence. They wrapped it around their fingers and held it tight all the long years they lay there in the dark, with the scurrying of rats and the occasional drip of water, the only sounds around them. Reggie took Hannah's gloved hand as they stared at the skeleton. If this was a movie, what happens next would be a montage that showed a number of events happening over many years. First, there was the identification of four of the skeletons. One has never been ID'd. Four grieving families. Four funerals, finally. The DNA of the hair failing to return a match. A sad requiem for the hope of the victim who had tried so hard in that last desperate moment. Reggie spending long hours poring over the computers up the library, long after the overtime budget for the case had been expended. Hannah spending equally long hours as she searched the crime databases for previous cases where there'd been similar cut marks on the ribs of the victims. Slow, methodical, painstaking work from both of them. Sometimes they worked side by side at the library, faces to their screens, occasional small comments at something of interest but usually nothing to do with the case. Like all montages, however, the music would eventually fade when conversation returned. As it happened, Hannah had started coming to Reggie's house on Saturday mornings to walk Reggie's dog, Delta, together. They'd bonded over the case, and in the recognition that they both felt the same passion for solving it. One Saturday morning, Reggie's phone rang. They were in the park. Speak, she demanded as she answered, her usual greeting. She ended the call without talking again. What is it? Hannah asked. Have you heard of Project Iceberg? Reggie asked. Hannah shook her head. About 18 months ago, someone had the bright idea to cross-reference all the non-identified DNA samples from all the cold cases in the state to see whether any were linked to each other. It's been a massive job. The hair, Reggie said. Hannah, of course, instantly knew which hair she was referring to. They found a match? A partial match, Reggie said. There was a string of unsolved murders in a small town called Reedy Creek back in the 80s. Murderer was nicknamed the Southern Slope's Strangler. More for alliterative purposes than accuracy, apparently, as the last three victims were poisoned. Pieces of a torn postcard were left with the bodies. One of them, from the second last crime scene, had DNA on it. It's a close enough match to the hair we found. So, there's a link. I should say a partial link 
to the strangler and whomever killed our bodies. So our killer could be related to the strangler? Hannah asked. Our killer is definitely related to the strangler, Reggie said. A child, apparently. Hairs only contain mitochondrial DNA. So this means the strangler must be our killer's mother. Delta had been fetching a tennis ball, covered now in drippy dog slobber. Reggie took the ball and instantly threw it again, rubbing her hands on her culottes, which were already damp from her previous throws. I guess it's great to have the connection, Hannah said. As we don't know who the Southern Slope Strangler is, it doesn't really help us much, does it? Next day, Reggie requested a copy of the Southern Slope's Strangler files. They arrived from the archives a few days later. She expected them to be dusty, maybe even cobwebbed, but it seemed that the archived material was kept in a good state. She read and reread, then made some inquiries before calling Hannah. I don't know if it's going to do us any good, she said. All the blokes that worked the case are dead. Nothing sus, old age or cancer, mostly. There's one guy still around, though. I'm going to give him a ring. She phoned the number, and to her surprise, it answered almost immediately. Rob Slattery, the voice said. She told him what had happened, and they arranged to meet for a coffee. He was apparently due to leave for a European holiday the following week, so Reggie was glad she'd called when she had. Rob was in his late seventies, but uh, Reggie thought he looked much younger. Uh, Doc says I have the constitution of a teenager, he explained. I don't seem to have aged as quick as some of the blokes I've known. I expect it'll catch up to me at some stage, though. He was on his third wife. Apparently, she was a keeper. A funeral director, of all things, he said. Caring and kind. We're a team, you see. We believe in each other. That's why it works, I think. Reggie referred him to the Southern Slope's strangler case. I only had it for a little while towards the end... It had already been over a year since the last death when it hit my desk, he said. How come you got it? He shook his head. To be honest, I, I think they knew it was a lost cause, but it was too soon to look like they were giving up. I re-interviewed a few people. There weren't many leads left to follow by then. Jimmy Finlayson had had it before me. He had a reputation for being dodgy, but I couldn't fault him on this one. Apart from never finding the killer, quite a big aspect, I'll grant you. Did anything ever strike you about the case, Reggie asked. Rob looked to the window and then back at Reggie. It was only ever a hunch, he said. But I always reckoned there was two killers. The strangler and the poisoner, I called them in my mind. It wasn't just because they'd gone from strangling to poisoning, but the pattern of the postcards was different. The murder of the couple that owned the newspaper had only one piece left with them. The other double murder had two. And the last one, that reporter, had none at all. Ours is using a knife, Reggie said. I don't see how the killings can be related. They're decades apart. Maybe it runs in families, Rob said. Reggie and Rob talked more about the case, then it was time for Rob to go. Gee, you looked sprightly, Reggie told Hannah later. Hope I'm that fit when I'm his age. 
Hannah rested her hand on Reggie's arm. I'm certain you will be, she said, smiling. Reggie smiled back and took Hannah's hand. There was eye contact as well, and, if I'm being honest, what's known in the films as a moment. Like there was gentle music playing somewhere. Music that still had an underscore of violence, though, or a chord that had not been resolved. I think they both knew that somehow they could not move further forward together until after they'd found the killer. However long that took. Reggie liked to talk about how many pairs of shoes she'd gone through in her job. Most of it, she said, walking up people's front paths to knock on their doors. Sometimes she was welcomed. Others she was shunned, of course. She'd interviewed and re-interviewed those close to the deceased, and she'd just spent another morning with the mother of victim five, whose real name it had her inspired was Penelope Reynolds. Reggie had been to see her mother, Helen, many times previously. She wasn't necessarily seeking evidence at this stage. She'd been very thorough with her initial questions, but she felt it was important to stay in contact with the parents, give them some comfort that their daughters weren't being ignored. Usually it was little more than a cup of tea and small talk, but Helen surprised her this morning. Jeremy, she said. Go on, Reggie told her. She didn't take out her notebook. She didn't believe after the hours they'd spent together she was going to hear anything important. Jeremy. Reggie recognised his name from the case history. He's the one who called in to report Penny was missing. And didn't he get a reward or something? Jeremy and Penny were the ones who identified that bloke who killed those women to cover up how he murdered his own wife. Reggie remembered the horrible time when it felt like the whole city was about to melt with the incessant heat. In the middle of the oven had been a killer, planning meticulous clockwork killings. But not the only killer, apparently, because someone else had murdered Penny. I have to move, Helen said. This place is too big now, Nigel's gone. Reggie knew that Nigel had been Helen's dachshund. Penny's father, Roger, had died five years before with no such epiphany. I've been deciding what to keep. I've been going through Penny's diaries. She'd apparently grown very fond of Jeremy. He was kind to us, offered us a share of the reward. We took a little, too, for Penny's sake. Well, Roger took it. I was too upset. Jeremy seemed genuinely caring. He's a famous filmmaker now, of course. Reggie had attempted to contact him more than once just to tick the box, she'd explained. But his representatives had never gotten back to her. I saw on the news that he's in Sydney at the moment, Helen said, and that lovely wife of his, Carla. Did you see her dress at the Logies? Oh, stunning! I'll have another go at contacting him, Reggie said. She was thorough like that. Richie told me later she felt the case was like school holidays. We were having dinner, Reggie and Hannah and me. The first half of the holes always dragged out, she said, like they were never going to end. But then the second half always flew by much too quickly. It was like that in this case. For a long time, I wasn't sure if we were ever going to solve it. It went at a snail's pace. 
and then the last part over in a few days. I worried that it was going to be one of those impossible murders, I said, taking a sip of wine. Like the Gordon Campbell one. Oh, I know who did that, Reggie said. Hannah nodded. I put my glass down and smiled. Well, I suppose that makes at least three of us, I told them. Not that there's any proof, of course. Or the interest to pursue it, Reggie said. Why didn't you tell me what happened next with the sump bodies, I asked. You went to interview Jeremy? Not then, Reggie answered. The next bit of evidence came from Hannah. Hannah looked up. Her eyes were sparkling. Reggie was watching her, equally resplendent with young love. I know they weren't actually that young, but everyone may as well be at that stage of a relationship, if you ask me. Hannah cleared her throat and began to talk. I'd done a search for micro-cut marks on the ribs. There were thousands, of course, but I concentrated on cases where the only evidence of death was the cuts. This brought the number down. I discarded others based on the age of the case. Eventually, the translation of a Spanish one arrived. I knew as soon as I read it that it was related to the sump bodies. I had chills run up my neck. I phoned the investigators of it straight away. Reggie took up the story. An Australian woman had been found dead in Barcelona about five years ago. Cindy Reynolds. She'd lived in Europe since she was 18. And now came the exciting bit. The very exciting bit. Tell the nice man what the exciting bit was, Hannah. Hannah looked at me. The exciting thing was that our DNA pinged their database. Not once. Not once, interrupted Reggie. But twice, Hannah finished. She stopped talking. Both women looked triumphant. All right, don't leave me in suspense, I said. Who did they match? They weren't both whose, Reggie said. One was a what. The postcard from the strangler, I asked. Correct. Give the man a non-nicotine-laden cigar, Reggie said. One hundred percent match with the DNA on the postcard. And the other was a partial match with the hair from the sump. Reggie let the implications of that sink in for a while. I did the logic. You're saying the body in Spain was the Southern Slope's strangler? I asked. Go on, Reggie said. Jesus. The Southern Slope's strangler was the mother of the sump body's murderer? Reggie was rocking backwards and forwards, her arms folded across her chest. We've got her now, she said. We've got her, haven't we, Han? We've nailed her. But you don't know who she is, I said. Do you? Not yet, Reggie said. But this is the end game of the jigsaw. Only a handful of blue pieces left to go. It's inevitable, that's what it is. Somewhere out there, our killer is living a life. Morning coffee, planning a trip, checking her savings, all the things people do. What they don't know is that the net drew so much tighter this morning. It's a net they're not even aware of, but it's landed over them already, and it's about to get much, much smaller. Hannah said that she and Reggie went off to a bar then. 
Reggie was on fire, she told me later. You know how she gets when she's near the end of the hunt. She told me what Reggie had said. Questions, Hannah. All of the questions. How is a body in Spain linked to bodies in Matraville, Sydney, beyond the obvious connection of DNA and the means of death? If the child of then Southern Slope strangler slash poisoner killed their mother, is sociopathy hereditary? Where is the killer of the bodies in Matraville? Who is the killer of the bodies in Matraville? How did they know of the existence of the sump? More importantly though, which avenue do we choose, Han? Do we move slowly and steadily, one step at a time, eliminating false trails, crossing off possibilities? Or do we choose the other route? Do we make a great noise, employ beaters, flush the killer out of their hiding place, Hannah? Do we have them run out of the bushes onto the short grass in plain sight, sprinting right towards us, she asked. Jesus, Reggie, Hannah said. This isn't the Hunger Games. I know that, Reggie replied. This is much more fun than boring old Hunger Games. It's real life, babe. These moments when I can sniff the fear of the hunted are why I joined up. This is my DNA springing to action. This is my heart racing with excitement. These are my eyes wide open. I'm going to get them, Hannah. You watch me. Bloody hell, Reggie, Hannah said. I don't know whether I should be extremely terrified of you or extremely attracted. Reggie smiled. Oh, the latter, she said. Most definitely the latter. Hannah actually blushed when she told me the story. It was like Reggie was riding horses and hounds and somewhere in the tree line, a murdering fox. The horns were blowing. We were galloping hard. Fear rose on the one side. Excitement increased on the other. And in the midst of the hunt, a single flower. The red rose of a kiss on the greenswood. A blot of colour, a marker of desire, the lone bright flower standing in a field torn up by hooves. I think that's how she put it anyway. A marker of their love. The Housing Commission database had hundreds of Reynoldses on it. Just as Reggie was preparing to trawl through them all, she actually found the newspaper page that matched the torn scrap of paper found in the rat's nest. Now she had a date range. She applied that to the database, and it showed that a Colleen Reynolds had been a tenant of the Matraville estate in the time period they were interested in. Hello, Colleen, Reggie whispered. I'm looking forward to meeting you. Nothing else, though. No driver's license, no passport. Reggie turned to Hannah. It's time to flush, babe, she said. Hannah nodded. How are you going to do it? She asked. Reggie thought for a minute. My auntie Flo is a great giver of advice, she said. If you'd ever have met her, you would have seen it immediately. Couldn't manage her own life to save herself, but was always telling other people what to do. It was a time when I was thinking of opening a clothing store. Oh, Babe, Hannah said. You sound surprised, Reggie said, stroking her hair. Flirting with retail. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking, but Flo had a good point. 
Sure, I was a clothes rack. Still are, Hannah said. Thank you, my darling, I do try. What was Flo's advice? Hannah asked. She reminded me that if you go into business, it isn't enough to be good at what you do, whether you're a mechanic or a plumber or a humble detective. You can be the best in your field, but you'll still fail if you're not good at business as well. Auntie Flo had a point, Hannah said. I want to flush, but I'm not an expert at flushing, Reggie explained. So, who's the expert? Hannah asked. I suspect a filmmaker would be pretty good. They'd know all about setting the scene, building the suspense, drawing the viewer along the path we want them to go on. Do you know any filmmakers? Not yet, Reggie admitted. Remember Jeremy, who knew body number five? Penny Ne Francis, Hannah said. This is his number, Reggie said, dialing. Oh, sorry, being frantic, Jeremy said when he answered. Sure, I can meet about Penny, but we're flying back to L.A. in a couple of days, and we've got back-to-back -back meetings till then. Can I come round and have a chat this avo? Reggie asked. There was a muffled voice in the background, female. Jeremy came back on the phone. Oh, we're just smashed right now, he said. When I get back, though, no problems. When's that? Reggie asked. Oh, at least ten weeks, I'm not sure. The muffled woman's voice again loud enough to understand she was giving directions. Uh, maybe longer, he said. Six months. Uh, I didn't know we had a Europe thing planned. But you don't have any meetings now, Reggie asked. Well, I guess, Jeremy said. Just before she ended the call, Reggie thought she heard the woman in the background shouting. It wasn't much later that both Reggie and Hannah were ushered into Jeremy's apartment in Woolloomooloo. Jeremy introduced them to his wife, Carla. Whatever reservations Reggie thought Carla had held about their visit seemed to have vanished. She was warm and charming. They sat on the lounge. Carla brought drinks as Jeremy spoke. I'm sorry, I don't have long, he said. Although I probably don't have anything to tell you that you don't have in your records. So... They found Penny. We always wondered what happened. More wine? Carla asked Hannah. Hannah nodded, and her glass was refilled. Did you know her too? Hannah asked Carla. Well, Jeremy knew Penny before he and I got together, she said. I think of her as his ex, I guess. We were never together, Jeremy protested. You were close though, Carla said, smiling. Despite her charm, Reggie wondered what it would be like to be on the wrong side of her. You're doing very well now, Reggie said to Jeremy. So it seems, he said. But you're only ever as good as your last movie. Luckily, Carla and I are a great team. I do the creative, she does the production side. She's very good. And, of course, she acts as well. You are very good, Hannah told her. Carla smiled again. So they say, she said. I guess I wouldn't be in the position I'm in today if I wasn't, would I? Do you remember anything else from the day Penny disappeared? Reggie asked. It's been a few years. Sometimes new things come to light. Jeremy shook his head. I told the police everything. I just wish I'd gotten to where we were supposed to meet up earlier than I did. You mean on time, Carla said. He's always late. Consistently late she explained. 
I set his appointments 15 minutes early, so there's a hope of him being punctual. Doesn't work, though, does it? Jeremy said. I know you do it. Carla smiled again. Bet she really sets them 30 minutes early, Reggie thought. If I'd have gotten to the cafe on time, I might have been there when Penny arrived, Jeremy said. Her bike was there. The killer had to have been close. We all thought at the time it was the other serial killer. It was only after he was caught we realised it couldn't have been him. Her bike, Reggie asked. Leaning against the wall where she left it, Jeremy said. We should wrap this up, Carla said abruptly. We have a Skype with LA in ten minutes. Time to go, she said. Come on, vamos. One more question, Reggie asked. Carla's eyes lit up. Just a quick one, Reggie reassured her. As a filmmaker, Jeremy, if you wanted to, you know, scare someone, perhaps to prompt them into action, if you wanted to frighten them out, how would you do it? Oh, that's easy, he said. Let them know you're closing in. Force them to respond somehow. Time's up, I'm afraid, Carla said. Hannah turned to her. Could I use your bathroom quickly? For a moment, Reggie thought it could go either way, but Jeremy answered before Carla could. Second on the left, he said, pointing. They were back in the car minutes later. Both Reggie and Hannah were smiling. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Reggie asked. Anna stretched out her hand and took Reggie's. You know what, Reggie, dear heart? I rather think I am, she answered. It took three days. The last afternoon they'd spent pacing in the park over the road from the hospital. It had come down to the line whether the lab could do it in time, but Hannah worked miracles with her contacts, and Reggie came down hard on hers. When the result came in, Reggie grabbed Hannah's hand and nearly dragged her to the car. The DNA of a hair that Hannah had taken from Carla's bathroom was identical to the DNA of the hair in the sump. They found themselves racing to the airport in a desperate attempt to arrest Carla before her plane left. Why me? Hannah asked. I'm not police. You don't think you're missing this, do you? Reggie asked, swerving around a slow-moving truck. The only truck in Sydney that drives slowly, she shouted. It was lights and sirens all the way to international departures. Reggie was on the phone the whole time, working her way further and further up the airport hierarchy as she displayed both bureaucratic tenacity and Formula One-level driving skill. When they reached the airport, however, Jeremy and Carla had already boarded the plane and it had pushed back from the airbridge. Reggie would have vaulted straight past customs if Hannah hadn't have dragged her back. You'll get shot, she said. Reggie still managed to get through in record time, flashing her badge, talking quickly as she sprinted off towards the airport gate. Hannah jogged along after her. She wondered about the scene on the plane. Had Carla felt triumphant as the plane moved away from the terminal? And what had she thought as it had stopped and the captain had made the announcement that it would be returning? When the cabin door opened, Reggie was standing there with her badge held high and fire in her eyes. Carla begged, pleaded, cajoled, smiled, snarled, then tried to bite. Jeremy was stunned, disbelieving, protective, angry, confused, and ultimately crushed. Security led Carla away, now wearing the handcuffs Reggie had slapped on her. 
Jeremy followed, already on the phone to his lawyers. Hannah took Reggie's hand as she emerged from the air bridge. Another great day for truth and justice, she asked. I don't know about that, Reggie said. Although I do know I never want to sprint like that again for the rest of my life. (laughs) As you will have read in the papers, quite a bit happened after the arrest. Pictures of Jeremy's outrage fronted many a newspaper. These were followed by pictures of his despondent, despairing, one might say gutted face as the truth sunk in. Carla had for some reason murdered her own mother overseas, then returned home. She never admitted to any of the killings, so we'll never know about her motives for killing victims one through four. But the last woman, Penny, we can tell that story. Carla was working as a waitress when she became infatuated with Jeremy. He'd just met Penny. Carla saw Penny as the competition. So one day she made sure Jeremy would never see her again. Then she dyed her hair, applied her makeup a little differently, and entered Jeremy's life via a different route. And they'd lived together, worked together, and loved each other ever since. As we all know, she's a brilliant actress. No wonder he was in denial at first, and then angry, and then so very, very sad. And that, friends and colleagues, and you, Lindsay, (laughs) is really the end of the story. Carla is in jail. Jeremy has gone back to L.A. His reputation is in tatters. How could he not have known about Carla? He may never work again. And Reggie and Hannah? They're a fully-fledged couple now. Engagement has been announced. A wedding date set. I mentioned I'd dined with them recently. If you'll allow me to digress for a moment, I'd like to ask you all if you believe in cosmic balance. In karma, I suppose. Because because at the dinner, they spoke not of the horror of Carla's murders, but of the miracles they'd seen along the road that had led them to her arrest. Just imagine, said Reggie, taking a sip of a rather nice Beaujolais. If Sam hadn't have chased Ahmed, if Ahmed hadn't dropped his phone, if Penny hadn't wrapped the hair around her finger, if the hair had fallen from her bones, if the rat hadn't made a nest with that scrap of newspaper, if the lighting hadn't revealed the cut marks, or if Carla had aimed straighter, if Reggie had reached out to Jeremy too late for them to meet, And if Carla hadn't have uttered that one word in Spanish, it was a trail of miracle breadcrumbs that led us right to her. You make it sound so easy, Hannah said. But you're right. We should celebrate the miracles and forget the horrors. Actually, we're surrounded by bloody miracles if we bother to look, Reggie said. Practically tripping over them all the time, really. I knew later they'd return home and find shelter in Reggie's bed and each other and one overly happy to see both of them Labrador. The other miracle is Reggie and Hannah themselves, guardians with diligence and integrity. They stand behind us, ready to spring into action in their protective role. We're blessed by having them, you see.
That was John Waters reading All Along the Watchtower. It was recorded on Gadigal land at King Sound Studios in Surrey Hills, Sydney. Thanks, Nick and Joe. The Ear Movies theme music was by Trevor Brown. Please like or rate the episode on your favourite podcast platform. Ear Movies are written and produced by me, Simon Luckhurst. Thanks for listening. Thank you.